Hello and welcome to Discovery, the national science radio show that mixes art, science and culture into a bubble and squeak your grandma would be proud of. I'm Adam Mark. On this edition, we conclude our series on the problem with neutrinos. We talk about mad cow embryos, cirrhotic Brits and why the wind blows in a particular direction. But first up, here's the news. A soon-to-be-published study has demonstrated that embryos taken from cattle infected with mad cow disease neither develop nor spread the illness to healthy animals. Michelle Tiba, the president of the Health and Safety Advisory Committee of the International Embryo Transfer Society, has recently headed a panel who has just reviewed a British study looking at embryos taken from cattle with mad cow disease. The results of the 12-year study said that these results should prompt governments around the world to rethink their policies regarding the international trade of embryos. The study, which began in 1989, involved taking embryo embryos from animals suffering from mad cow disease and then transferred them to heifers from New Zealand that were free of the deadly brain-wasting disease. The results were all negative. No animals got mad cow disease. Tiba said this research was important because certain countries place the same kinds of restraints on the movement of embryos as they do live animals, and that such constraints have no scientific basis and are unnecessary. From Brazil, farmers have begun using satellite technology in a bold bid to bolster the production of soy and corn crops. In the western state of Mato Grosso, a prime gro grain growing region, agricultural researchers are testing out the satellite navigation system GPS to determine the soil characteristics and climate of crop plantations. This farming system is known as precision agriculture and uses satellites and computers to determine how much fertilizer and pesticide is required by the soil. It is being developed Brazil's state-owned agricultural investigation firm Embrapa. The aim of this farming technique is to reduce the contamination through the use of pesticides and eliminate fertilizer waste. Unfortunately, precision agriculture is an expensive exercise, costing between $12,000 and $15,000 per year to implement, and out of the reach of the majority of Brazilian farmers. A joint venture between Embrapa and the US Agricultural Research Service, the two world's largest state-run agricultural research firms, have worked hard to introduce the technology to Brazil. They have met recently to discuss the partnership and future plans. The hope is to make this technology more accessible and the Mato Grosso experiments were designed to find ways to achieve that. From Britain, a recent study on the state of people's health in England has found that binge drinking causes a sharp rise in deaths from liver disease. Professor Liam Donaldson, the government's top medical advisor, warned that liver disease is striking both men and women at earlier ages than ever before. Professor Donaldson then went on to say that a worrying trend is developing in the number of young people who are being diagnosed with cirrhosis of the liver, which appears to be linked to alcohol and binge drinking in particular. The report also stated that over 4,000 people had died from cirrhosis of the liver in the year 2000. Of that number, almost 800 people between the ages of 25 and 44 were killed and two out of three sufferers before they reached 65. 
Also included in the report was that the death rates for chronic liver disease had increased in all age groups since the early 1970s. Deaths among men aged 45 to 54 rose fourfold, while three times as many women in the age group died. Among those 35 to 44-year-old male deaths, they jumped eightfold and female deaths sevenfold, while there were four times more deaths in the 25 to 34 age group. Cirrhosis of the liver now kills more men than Parkinson's disease and more women than cervical cancer. Although difficult to verify empirically, Donaldson suggests that the explanation for this increase in death rates from chronic liver disease and cirrhosis of the liver is due to higher levels of alcohol consumption. He called for a concerted effort to tackle the rise in heavy drinking and suggested the drinks industry and national health services had major roles to play. A more sobering thought is that this is not just a health issue, but also social damage such as crime and disorder, accident and injury, and social exclusion. To conclude, Professor Donaldson also suggested that any solution must focus on changing problematic patterns of drinking in the young. And now, we know you've been waiting with bated breath for this. Chris Stewart is back with his exciting conclusion to his series on the problems with neutrinos. Will the Canadians find the weight of a neutrino two kilometres underground? Will the Japanese find a way to get over their depression? And did the butler really do it? Take it away, Chris. tune in to last week and I can't imagine why any of you wouldn't have but there you go here's a quick neutrino update back in the 1930s theorists were grappling with the problem of a particular kind of new atomic decay known as beta decay this is where a neutron in the atom spontaneously decides to change into a proton spitting out an electron in the process experimenters found that if you add up all of the energy carried by the electron and the proton it didn't even come close to equaling the original energy of the neutron a violation of the sacred law of conservation of energy, a big no-no. Well, Wolfgang Pauli decided that one way around this problem was to invent a new particle, the neutrino. That could be carrying away the unaccounted for energy unseen. It was a crazy idea, one that Pauli didn't even believe at first, yet physically everything made sense, and a few years later, fiction became fact, when the neutrino was discovered in particle detectors set up around one of those newfangled atomic reactors. After discovering the neutrino, physicists set about trying to decide on the properties of this new particle. No electric charge, that was certain, but what about mass? Just how heavy is this new thing? It's an important question because neutrinos were thought to be the most numerous particles in the universe. For decades, physicists argued over whether they were completely massless, like photons, or if they have just a tiny weeny little bit of mass, like all the other matter particles in the cosmos. 
For decades, the evidence was inconclusive, and the neutrino mass problem stuck in the collective craw of the world's great thinkers. To add insult to injury, physicists weren't even sure that they had the basic neutrino interactions right. They tried to measure the number of neutrinos coming from the sun, as a result of the great nuclear fires burning within its core, and were perplexed to find only about one-third of the number they expected from their calculations. Either something was wrong with the well-established and well-respected solar model, a theory of the sun's nuclear reactions that meshed perfectly with every other experimental test, or they just didn't understand the neutrino at all. Two problems, one of mass, one of quantity. In the late 1990s, two experimental laboratories, each worth millions of dollars, were built to find answers. One was called Snow, the other Super Kamiokande. One has had a ripper of a year, the other... Not so much. One suggested solution to the solar neutrino problem involves the theory that there are actually three different kinds of neutrino, not one. One each associated with the three fu fundamental particles known as the electron, the muon and the tau. The muon and the tau are kind of like heavy sibling, siblings of the electron, if you've never heard of them before. The neutrinos coming from the sun should only be the electron kind. To explain the large shortfall in the solar neutrino count, some physicists suggest that maybe the electron neutrinos are changing into the muon and tau types as they travel from the sun to the earth. Thing is, the physicists reckon, neutrinos can only do this if they have mass. So if you solve one problem, you can solve both enter the Sudbury Neutrino Observatory. Snow is housed in an old abandoned nickel mine near the city of Sudbury in northern Ontario, Canada. To get to the observatory, you enter a big elevator and hit the down button. Way down. For about two kilometres down. So far down, the geothermal heat from the surrounding rocks makes everything nice and toasty. Down there, the clever Canadians have built a large spherical swimming pool, filled with water and surrounded by thousands of photon detectors. In this bizarre apparatus, they hope to detect flashes of light that signal the death of a solar neutrino. Why a swimming pool? Well, detecting a neutrino isn't easy. They will only ever interact with normal matter very, very rarely, by colliding with an atom. The result is a tiny flash of light. Now, one way of trying to observe this process is to get an atom and wait for a neutrino to hit it. Thing is, even with the trillions of trillions of neutrinos coming from the sun every second, you'd be waiting a very long time. Only a few of them will collide with atoms in your body in your lifetime. The other way to do it, then, is to get a very large amount of matter, say, for example, a big swimming pool full of water, and watch it for hopefully a shorter time. Snow's tank will hold about a thousand tons of water, and by their calculations, they expect to see a few neutrinos collisions each day. Why does it have to be so far underground? Well, because the physicists would have a very difficult time separating the flashes of light they see in the swimming pool caused by neutrinos from those caused by the cosmic rays continually bombarding the surface of the Earth. 2K underground, you expect very few cosmic rays, and so you can safely assume that anything you see is from a neutrino collision. What makes the snow detector so special is that, unlike all other kinds of neutrino detectors, it's been cleverly designed to watch for the effects of all three kinds of neutrino, not just the electron kind. So the snow researchers can tell if the neutrinos are changing type en route from the sun. On July 18th this year, the snow team sent out a triumphant press release stating that they had finally solved the great puzzle. They had found, as had all the physicists before them looking at it, that the number of electron neutrinos coming from the sun was about one-third the predicted number. 
but they'd also found roughly the same number of muon and tau neutrinos. Strong evidence that the neutrinos were switching types as they went. This in turn says that at long last, the world knows that neutrinos have mass. I know, I know, I'm excited too. This was not such a good year for another neutrino observatory buried deep underground in the mountains of Japan this time. Super Kamiokande, or Super K to its friends, has been trying to answer the solar neutrino question for some time as well, using similar techniques to the Canadians. In November of this year, they performed a routine pump out of their giant swimming pool for some standard maintenance. When pumping the water back in, something went a little awry. Perhaps the pressure was too high, maybe it was too low, who knows? Perhaps the flow rate was too great. Whatever the reason, one of the 10,000 or so photon detectors that surround the swimming pool like so many mosquitoes on an exposed ankle on a summer evening, well, it just kind of broke. Exploded would be a better description. You can think of it as a light bulb shattering. The consequences wouldn't have been terribly great if it had stopped there. But an instant later, the shockwave from that detector exploding caused the neighbouring detector to shatter as well. And the next, and the one beside that. And before they could say, Chikuzo, hundreds of the little bastards had gone off, showering the detector with shards of broken glass and bits of electronics, and thoroughly compromising the clean room requirements of this most sterile of experimental environments. As you might say, bugger. So... In a few short months, triumph and tragedy across the world of particle physics, all over a tiny subatomic particle. At least we can now all rest soundly because, thanks to the efforts of a troop of tenacious particle physicists, I can assure you that the neutrino really does have mass. No, really, don't thank me. It's been my pleasure. Well, who would have expected an ending like that? That was Chris Stewart with the final instalment on the problem with neutrinos. I'm sure that the next time you hear the word neutrino, you'll consider them in a completely new light. You're listening to Discovery, the National Science Radio Show. Still to come, the Coriolis Effect, or why the water goes down the toilet that way. Hi, this is Douglas Adams. I'm the author of The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and I'm here to urge you to listen to the National Science Program on Discovery. Ever wondered why rivers meander towards the sea? Why the rotations of cyclones in the southern hemisphere differ to that of hurricanes in the northern hemisphere? Or more simply, why does water go down sink the sink in opposite directions in opposite hemispheres? Well, thankfully, Lachlan Watmore is here to explain why. There are a few electric... Once upon a time, I used to be a pretty good pool player. 
Not great, mind you, but pretty good. My pride were my long-range shots right down the table, made even more impressive due to the fact that I wear spectacles. Then one day I found myself in the Northern Hemisphere, California it was, and someone asked me to play pool. No problem, I thought, and was immediately slaughtered in the game. Not a shot got in, and my long-range shots kept curving away to the right. Each one seemed to be perfectly lined up before queuing, but then they would deflect right and miss every time. Finally, I realised the problem. It was the Coriolis effect. I'm the world, I'm thinking of when a plane flies from Brisbane to Melbourne, it takes about two hours. During that time, the plane is flying over a rotating sphere, i.e. the Earth. If the plane flew on the same course to Melbourne as indicated on the map and made no adjustment for this fact, it would miss Melbourne no matter how accurate the map is. The reason for this is because Melbourne would have moved a few hundred kilometres east to use the rotation of the Earth and the plane would end up somewhere over the Great Australian Bight. Melbourne will have effectively been removed from under it. And the cause of this is the Coriolis effect. While others have children, just it with When the wind blows on the water of the ocean, we would expect it to make the water move. Sure enough, it does, but not in the same direction as the blowing of the wind. In fact, the surface water tends to move at 45 degrees to true, and the bulk of the water, known as the net transport, moves at 90 degrees to true. For reference, that's 45 and 90 degrees to the right of the wind in the northern hemisphere and to the left of the wind in the southern. And again, the cause of this is the Coriolis effect. So, what the hell is the Coriolis effect, and what has it got to do with my pool game? Well, the Coriolis effect is the study of the Earth's rotation and how it affects objects moving over the Earth's surface. All my life, I'd been playing pool in Australia, with a slight movement of the ball to the left, which I had unconsciously compensated for. In California, that adjustment was now an overcompensation, and my shots went wide. So it is for many objects, solid and liquid, which move over the Earth's surface. Remember, the Earth is a rotating sphere, and any object moving on its surface is, by definition, moving in a curve. The most intensive study of the Coriolis effect was undertaken by the US Air Force in the 50s to see how it would affect the aiming of intercontinental ballistic missiles. Accuracy of nuclear weapons has been a vital factor in strategic doctrine because an accurate nuke can destroy the other guys' nukes in their bunkers with a direct hit. A non-direct hit won't. Probably the most terrifying application of the study of the Coriolis effect comes in the form of the MX Peacemaker ICBM, which will put a nuclear warhead within 50 metres of its designated target. Yeah, spin up those warheads, Dr. Strangelove. Oh, and, and by the way, in case you haven't guessed by now, I'm actually lying through my teeth about the pool game. The Coriolis effect only works on a large scale. Blaming the effect was just the first excuse I could think of. That was Lachlan Watmore explaining the mind-spinning topic of the Coriolis effect. You're listening to Community Radio's national science show, Discovery, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio satellite, ComradeSat.
now with some late news. Here's Chris Stewart. Straight off the wire of Reuters, racism is not hardwired into the brain and a little coalition building can help people lose their racist tendencies, researchers said on Monday. They said their findings offer hope for ending conflicts based on an us-and-them mentality as it relates to race. A simple four-minute experiment could make people forget their notions of race, at least for a little while, later Cosmides, John Tooby and Robert Kurzban of the Center for Evolutionary Psychology at the University of California, Santa Barbara, reported. Social psychologists had found that it seemed no matter what you did, people would categorize others by their race, Cosmides said in a telephone interview. But not with us, I'll just make that make that clear. We don't have that kind of pull. Um, they were trying really hard to get people not to categorize people by race, and they weren't having any luck. And they were really getting depressed by this. But Cosmides said, while it makes sense that people should have evolved to notice sex and age, there was no reason to think recognizing race was important to survival. Genetic researchers say race does not show up in the genes, and humans are highly interbred. It didn't make sense to us that the mind would be designed to automatically encode race, Cosmides said. Kurzban said that the group set up an experiment in which people were asked to watch two racially integrated basketball teams have a conversation on a computer screen. The participants' task was to remember who said what, Kurzban said. They did not know why. But Kurzban said in most cases, if people get two strangers mixed up, they are more likely to mix up a black person with another black person, white with white, and so on. What the experiment was designed to do is show that when members of two races are on both teams, the mistakes are no longer as extensive, Kurzban said. Instead, the volunteers mixed up remarks based on which team a person was on. The researchers reported in Tuesday's issue of the Proceedings in nat uh, the National Academy of Sciences. What is most striking about these results is just how easy it was to diminish the importance of race by manipulation, manipulating coalition, they wrote in their report. What people are really good at is detecting patterns of alliance. And let's face it, we don't live in an integrated society. And that brings us to the end of this edition of Discovery. If you'd like to contact us, you can reach us via email at discoveryradio at yahoo.com.au. That's discoveryradio at yahoo.com.au. Contributing to the program were Chris Stewart, Lachlan Watmore, and me, Adam Mark. Discovery has been produced by me again, with technical assistance by Gina Satori, in the studios of 2SER Sydney. Discovery is broadcast nationally via ComradeSat by the Community Broadcasting Association of Australia. I'm Adam Mark. Join us for more science at the same chronological configuration next week on Discovery. Mama, my name.